the book of Exodus, chapter 33, and we're going to drop in at verse 7. It was Moses' practice to take the tent of meeting and set it up some distance from the camp. Everyone who wanted to make a request of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent of meeting, all the people would get up and stand in the entrances of their own tents. They would all watch Moses until he disappeared inside. As he went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and hover at its entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. When the people saw the cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, they would stand and bow down in front of their own tents. Inside the tent of meeting, the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Afterward, Moses would return to the camp. But the young man who assisted him, Joshua, son of Nun, would remain behind in the tent of meeting. I I love this episode that we begin today. And because I love it, I'm afraid of it. Um, From the burning bush on, God has been revealing himself more and more. So if the burning bush is like sunrise, the the day of Exodus is getting brighter and brighter. And really, we've come to the climax, I think, where the light is almost blinding. And my fear is, is in my own inadequacy to handle something so awesome. Um, and I feel like in just trying to explain some things, I'm going to deprive you of a richer experience you could have with the text if you just go there for yourself and enjoy it. Um, but this is what I get paid for. So... Um, there's some big ideas here, but it's not about the big ideas. Um, that's not what we're supposed to walk away with. People tell stories in order sh- to share an experience. And if you've had some harrowing experience and you're telling a friend and that friend says, oh no, what happened next? You know that they're experiencing the experience. In, in, in universities, we speak from head to head, from mind to mind. But in stories, we speak from heart to heart, from experience to experience. So there's something here we would want to experience, and it's probably best to try to feel our way through it rather than just read or even study our way through it. There are signposts that point to the beginning and the end of this episode. And that signpost is specifically the tent of meeting. And uh, it starts here, and then we come back to it at the end of chapter 34, the next chapter. Uh, So we're not going to try to make that distance today. But just so you, you know, what that tells us is that within this, this framework, this envelope, uh, there's a message about the, the tent of meeting, its meaning and its place and its purpose. And uh, so we'll pick up on that as we go through it. Uh, here, it's introduced kind of like a footnote. It's almost a distraction. If you recall last week, 
God was still deciding what he was going to do with the people of Israel. He had all these great plans. He's going to have his own tent right among them. It's going to be beautiful. And he, he uh, had established a covenant relationship with them. It was, it, it was just starting off so well. And he said, I'll be your God. You'll be my people. You'll be special to me. And then they do the golden calf. And now everything has, has come undone. Um, his wife has been unfaithful to him. She's broken her covenant vow. And he's thinking about divorce. Uh, he, and he tells Moses, get your people that you brought out of Egypt and take them. I'm not traveling with you. And Moses says, what do you mean my people? Um, these are your people. You're the one who brought them out of Egypt. Um, and God says, well, I have to think about this, basically. Um, and he's setting up a situation. Of course, you know, he's God. He's setting up a situation where he wants a particular response from them. And it really looks like uh, things could go one way or another, depending on their response. Uh, and so while God is deciding and the people are waiting silently, we have this story about the tent. And um, the storyteller uses it to set up the conversation that Moses and God will have inside the tent and then what will follow from that. It, it, it fills some time then uh, because we know this other thing's going on in the background. Now, we have read about the tent of meeting. And again, uh, it has several Hebrew names which come into English as sanctuary, uh, the tent of the testimony, uh, the, the dwelling place of God. Uh, here it's the tent of, of meeting. And its, it's name identifies it as a place of encounter. Um, the meeting is between heaven and earth, between God and Moses and, and God and his people, so that anyone who wants to um, in, uh, make a request of God will go out to the tent to do so. This is not the full-blown sanctuary that God gave Moses the description of and the plans for. This is uh, a makeshift shrine so that they have a point of contact with Yahweh, their God. Uh, and it's pitched outside the camp. The plan for the sanctuary was to be right in the center of the camp so that uh, this is the heart of the nation. God is the heart of his people. Uh, but now it's outside the camp. And we find that phrase outside the camp many times in the books of Leviticus and Numbers. Uh, if you have a weak stomach, uh, don't read the book of Leviticus. Um, my wife thrives on things like this. She likes watching you know, real life in the emergency room. Uh, and she goes, oh, look at that. You can see right all the way down to that. And I said, I don't want to hear it. I'm not looking. Um, and that's kind of how Leviticus is. But um, so it not only talks about the innards of animals that, that are sacrificed, but it goes over things like, like leprosy and uh, uh, fungi. Not a fun guy, but various forms of leprosy and, and uh, fungus. And sometimes people are sequestered outside the camp 
because they have a condition that is unclean, uh, unholy, perhaps uh, considered contagious, and so they have to be put outside the camp. Well, in this case, the tent of meeting is what's holy, you know, par excellence, and it's outside the camp because the people now are considered unclean. Um, so God says, it, it's, it's as God said, I'm not going to travel with you anymore. So Moses takes and puts God's tent outside the camp, and you have to leave the camp where all the bad stuff has taken place in order to connect with God. Um, now we observe what happens when Moses heads for that tent, that um, it's either announced or somehow it's whispered from tent to tent, Moses is, is going to the tent of meeting, and families would get up and stand in the doorway of their tents, and they'd watch him as he'd walk by, they'd watch him all the way out to the tent. And when he got to the entrance of the tent, God's presence in the cloud would hover over the entrance, and when they saw that, they'd all bow down and worship. They are participating in his encounter with God. They're in their own home, in their own place, but they're participating in this encounter. That's a lot of Israel's worship, that um, they don't approach the altar themselves with their offerings. Uh, the priest takes it to the uh, altar for them, and the priest does all kinds of work for them to uh, atone for them. And, uh, and some people are content with that. Um, there's a couple, the first time I, I met them, oh, and this was interesting. Um, they had just started coming to our church. And when I say church, you know I'm not talking about this. Um, uh, they had first started coming to our church. Uh, she had been coming and was connecting. And then he started to, to come with her on occasion and more regularly. And they had a question about uh, a multi-level, you know, um, invest now, uh, steal from Peter to pay Paul scheme. Uh, and it was real popular at the time. You, you join up for $1,000, and then you get other people to join, and they give their $1,000, and you get a piece of that, and the person above you gets a piece of that, and the people at the top get a lot of money and then leave before the FBI gets there. Um, and he was thinking, hey, there's no harm in this. Uh, and she didn't feel right about it, so they came to talk to me. And uh, she was telling me about how she had grown up in, uh, uh, in a, the Catholic Church and then uh, what she was getting from uh, coming to our church. And he said, she's my guiding light, which basically says, I don't take any interest in those things. I just, whatever she tells me to do, I do. Um, uh, regarding religion. And some people are content with that, to let somebody else uh, have the experience, and then they just share it vicariously. And I suppose, you know, there's some things that that's the only way to, that we have access to it. On the other hand, um, I want to experience for myself, uh, and uh, I want to participate just as far as I'm allowed to, which I think today's story is kind of about. Um, so they're in the entrance of their tents. God, uh, God is hovering over the entrance of his tent. Their actions correspond to Moses' interactions with God. And remember, 
God chose doorways as a place of encounter. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 9, God is going to tell them, write on the doorpost of your home and on the gate outside these rules of mine so that you don't forget, so that it's always there. But the gate and the doorpost were significant uh, in terms of being thresholds, that you cross a threshold. If you're standing in a threshold, you're probably greeting someone or saying goodbye to someone, um, or you're coming in or going out. But the threshold itself is this mystical place that's not in, it's not out, it's nowhere, it's everywhere, it's in and out, it, it shares of both. And God chooses this strange space as a, as a place to meet his people, as a place to reveal himself. And it's not just thresholds in space, it's also thresholds in time, um, morning and evening, uh, the cosmic hinges of the day. Uh, and as time turns, there's this moment where he says, pause, make an offering to me, make a prayer to me, connect with me, because I'm very, very close in the threshold. Um, you know, uh, I just want to stress this so much that I need to let it go and, and move on. Uh, but I said it, and you heard it, and now you're responsible for it. Um, and, and the reason I say this is because, obviously, in this particular narrative, the threshold is so important. You know, God told Moses, that's where I'll meet with you, at the threshold. That's where I'll, I'll um, meet with my people. And so here they are in the threshold of their home. God's in the threshold of his. And the space in the threshold thins out so that heaven is much closer. I, I know that, that there's no instrument on earth where you can measure how much God's presence is in the threshold. But um, when Victor Turner, an anthropologist, wrote uh, an essay on uh, liminal space, and liminal is from the Latin word for threshold, um, he said that in religious rites, uh, there's always this threshold of becoming and that the person you are before is different from the person afterwards. You can think of bar mitzvah in the Jewish faith that um, the young adolescent becomes a man through the, the bar mitzvah ritual. But he says there's always a time in the ritual when you're stuck in the threshold and, and important things happen there that need to happen for you to continue on and go through. Um, and most important of all is meeting with God. My grandfather, um, my dad's dad, who I have only very few memories of, was, uh, he, he was I want to say he was like five foot seven, uh, maybe five foot six, I don't remember. But I remember my Uncle Bill standing next to my grandfather because my Uncle Bill was over six feet tall and he just towered over Grandpa. And uh, Uncle Bill was wild. Uh, he uh, raced motorcycles. He owned a body shop in Santa Ana. He was, uh, he was really a character. Um, and he was with a friend one time. I remember I met my grand 
parents' house, and they're about ready to walk out the door, and Grandpa says, wait. And he puts his hand on Bill's shoulder, and he bows his head, and he prays for Bill and his friend. Now, I don't know if his friend was a believer. I don't know how much Bill was thinking about God's place in his own life. Um, like I say, he was wild. He had, had a lot of fun. But as my grandfather prayed for him, Bill bowed his head and he prayed also. And were his friend to snicker um, or uh, you know, later on say, what was that about? Um, Bill probably would have beaten, beaten him up. <laughs> like I said, he was from Santa Ana. But um, my, uh, my grandfather stopped him at the threshold to do what? To connect with God and to connect his son to God. You know, one, one day my daughter, Karen, you know, back in the days of substance abuse, when she was leaving the house, um, I said, Karen, the, um, I was at the door, and uh, she turned around, she was standing on the threshold, and I said, you know, Karen, my most important concern for you is your life with God. And she looked up at me and she said, Daddy, I still pray. And that just brought so much comfort to me. It's like, well, I'm not giving up on that. And I hope he's not giving up on me. Um, and I still pray. I still have this connect. And that's all I needed to hear in that moment. In fact, if she had said anything else, well, I'm really planning on going back to church. I want to believe because that just wasn't where she was then. So, okay, so don't tell my daughter I talked about her. Please. Um, while there, God would speak to Moses. And there are two phrases that, that emphasize the intimacy. He spoke to him face to face and friend to friend, which is beautiful. And then Moses would return to the people, perhaps with a message. And, uh, and that's the story, except that there's this last word, which, which is the, the thing we least expect. It says that... Joshua, Moses' assistant, would linger in the tent after Moses left. And that is as surprising as when we read earlier that Moses was the only person on the mountain. As he came down, halfway, he met Joshua, who was also on the mountain, who had not been down in the camp of the people and did not know what was going on down there. What's Joshua doing up on the mountain? And what's he doing in the tabernacle? when this is all about Moses and so exclusively Moses. And nothing is said about God spoke to Joshua as a friend to a friend. Well, I like to think that Joshua simply enjoyed lingering in the presence. As if, I know, God, you didn't come for me, but I sure appreciate the privilege of being able to stand by and listen to you and Moses. And I just don't want to leave this place. Um, and I, yeah, I could go on and on, but I, I relate to that. I think that that is the nerve, uh, the, the sensitive nerve of the spiritually devout person. And I think that we see this in the psalmist where their higher spiritual aspirations are revealed. 
you know, one thing I have desired of the Lord, that I could dwell in his house. Or as a deer pants for the water brook, so pants my soul for you, O God. There's this longing, this desire to be near the presence and to, to absorb it. And to, I would like to say that when you're there, nothing else matters. And all those anxieties, all those issues, you know, the only thing we've seen Joshua do so far is fight a battle, lead the army of Israel in battle. So he's a warrior, and who knows when he's going to be called up next to, uh, you know, for some campaign. Uh, and his soldiers, are they well trained? I mean, there are all kinds of anxieties he could have over this. He just wants to linger in God's presence. Anyway, uh, in verses 12 through 16, Moses continues to press God for an answer. He says, you told me to take these people and to lead them, and you're sending someone with, with me, but you haven't told me who that person is. Um, there are a few things to observe in the, this dialogue together, um, and most of them the New Living Translation misses. And I, I like reading the New Living Translation to you because it makes it simple. But in terms of the literary heart of this, it's, it's a sad translation. Um, first of all, this conversation is really visual. Moses will say, see, he begins with, with see, see, you told me to take these people. You haven't told me who you're going to send with me. And remember, it says in the New Living Translation, literally it's, and see, um, these are your people. It's like, by the way, look, these are your people. So he begins and ends his introduction with see. And inside it, he talks about, you told me that uh, I have received favor in your eyes. Um, or in your sight, we would say, but the Hebrew is quite literal, in your eyes. And this is repeated in verse 13. If I have found favor in your eyes, then give me, give me, give me. Um, so sight will be a, a part of this, and it goes on, in your eyes is repeated like three more times, and God will also say, see. Um, but it comes to two crescendos, and one crescendo is with Moses, and the other crescendo is with God. And uh, I'll try to point that out. Uh, secondly, the word favor, which is also translated grace, is uh, a, a theme here. Um, and it can mean to be given special status. Do you remember Joseph when he was in Egypt that uh, the chief jailer, well, first Potiphar, and then the chief jailer, uh, he found favor in their eyes. And the same thing is said of Esther, that she found favor in the eyes of the guy who was in charge of the harem, and then in the eyes of the king. And Daniel also will find favor in the eyes of his supervisors and the kings that he serves. Uh, this gives us a portrait of the the... Jew who remains loyal to God and loyal to family when in exile. Because all three of these people were in exile and all of them kept that connect with God and all of them found favor with those who were in charge of them. 
even though they were exiles and Joseph a slave and prisoner. All right, so God tells Moses, you have received this special status with me. And Moses brings this up. And then the third is the word no. It's repeated six times in the conversation. And more than anything, Moses wants to know God. And this is, this is part of what he's asking for. for. For the moment, Moses felt stranded. He wants a more definite answer from God. If you're sending an angel with us, I want to know his name. Um, I mean, Moses has been so familiar with God. Now God's talking about this other person. Moses says, I don't even know this person. When are you going to introduce us? When, when are you going to tell me his name? Um, and so, uh, at least that's what he says he wants to know. There's an indication that what he really wants is a second chance with God, for Israel to have a second chance, that he's trying to bend his decision in Israel's favor. Please renew your covenant with us. Please, please don't abandon us here in the desert. Uh, he, he says, you told me that you know me by name. Now, the name of a person is not insignificant in the book of Exodus where God for the first time reveals his name, Yahweh. Um, and this conversation is possible because these two parties know each other by name. They can engage as person to person in this conversation. In verse 13, uh, Moses' formal request is, here's what I'm asking for. Show me your favor, your grace, and show me your way. Well, you know, he just has a way about him. Or he has a way of doing things. This is what we're getting at here with this, this word way. It means path, road, way. But it's frequently used in this figurative sense, speaking of something internal. Um, it's like a predisposition. Only That doesn't quite cut it with, with we're talking about God. Um, it's what's important to a person, what motivates a person, what directs their actions. This is, these are their ways. Teach me your ways. It's interesting here that it's singular because most of the time it's plural. Um, remember in Isaiah where God said, my thoughts are not your thoughts and my ways are not your ways. The thoughts are internal, but also the ways are internal. As high as heaven is above earth, so high are my thoughts above your thoughts and my ways above your ways. Now, here's a kicker. Uh, Psalm uh, 103, verse 7 says that God made his ways known to Moses, his acts to the sons of Israel. God made his ways, that internal part, to Moses. All Israel got was what God did. Do you see the difference? Now, you can um, deduce from God's way, from God's actions, what his ways are. Well, look, he forgave us for the sin. He, he's forgiving and merciful. But, it's, but you don't know him unless you know his ways. And that's what Moses is saying. Show me your ways so that I may know you. 
I want, I want to know, if I know this about you, if I know your ways, then I know you. And, I, I'm, and this is what he's going after. I want to know you. Moses had seen so much. He had already received so much from God. Here he is talking to God like a friend talks to another friend. You know, how many conversations have you had with God like that? Um, hopefully some, but not nearly a, a, enough. And he's saying, but this isn't enough for me, God. Show me your ways. Take me, take me deeper inside of you. And, and then I won't be making the mistakes I'm making, and others won't make the mistakes that they've been making. Let me know you like this. It's pretty, it's pretty bold of him. Uh, not as bold as he's going to get. Uh, to know God's ways would be to know God and to know him well enough to make right decisions. God's answer in verse 14, again, the New Living Translation adds a whole bunch of words. It's only four words, four Hebrew words in the original text. And he says, my presence will go and you will have peace. That's what those four words mean. Uh, We've added with you, my presence will go with you and you will have peace. You is singular. You, Moses, you'll have peace. Moses is not at peace right now. And God says, okay, Moses, you've twisted my arm. Um, I do love you. You are special to me. I know you by name. My presence will go with you then. That's my decision. I'm going to rejoin the group. Do you see that? Do you understand what's happening here? It's, this is, yeah, this is it. This is the decisions made now. And he says, we're going to give this another try my presence will go with you and you will have peace that's a sermon in itself so that's all I'm going to say about that please take some time with it and and let God speak that to you discover what it means to you Moses response is immediate if your presence doesn't go with us then don't tell us to go either your presence is with us or we're just going to stay right here at Mount Sinai. We'll all, you know, all of our bones will be buried here. Um, and if I were writing the story, I would have said, and Moses blurted out, if your presence doesn't go with us, we're not going. Because it's almost that, that quickly that he responds to God and he, and he completely embraces what God has said. God's presence is what defined Israel. Israel, and that's what Moses reminds him. It's what secured them as a nation. He goes, who are we without you? Well, um, pleased with what God has given him, this assurance, uh, Moses goes for the brass ring. Um, he, he pushes the envelope. You know, sometimes people tested just what they could get away with with God. Um, Abraham, who is also the friend of God, did some hefty ne- negotiating with him. And, um, and, and God let him go. Uh, he started with 50. What, what if there are 50 righteous people in Sodom? Are you going to destroy Sodom if there are 50 righteous people there? You're not going to do that. God says, no, no. And if there are 50 righteous people, I want to. And Abraham says, well, what if there are only 40? And God says, no, you know, if there are 40 righteous, no problem. Well, what if there are only 30? I mean, that's only 10 different from 40. Of course, it's 20 different from 50, but... Um, and then he gets down to 10. What if there are only 10 righteous? And God says, no, and then God leaves. Because next it's going to be, well, what if there aren't any? 
Um, so they, they push the envelope because they get the sense that they can. And you know, God seems to be okay with this. Um, go ahead and ask. Ask for something outrageous. And that's what Moses does. Um, he reiterates the fact of, well, God reiterates the fact that he knows Moses by name and that he's found favor. And, uh, and I mentioned that the theme of sight builds to a crescendo. This is Moses' crescendo. He says, show me your glory. That's it. That's the, that's the height. It's not another flash of radiance like Israel's already seen in the clouds. He is asking for a fuller revelation of God himself. He wanted to see God. I want to see you, God. We've had this conversation. Um, you're, you're behind the cloud. You're not visible to me. I want you to let me see you. You, you know, you're going to let me know your ways. I feel like I know you now, but let me see you. Um, and God tells Moses what he, what he will do for him, but what he won't do. He says, Moses, um, there's a cave up here, and I'm going to put you in that cave, and then all my goodness is going to pass by you. I cannot imagine what the experience of that would be. You know, I've seen people do good deeds, and it's touched my heart. Uh, I don't think I've ever seen, like, your goodness, um, and I can't imagine. This is all passed by, and you'll experience my goodness. And uh, and he says, and then I'll proclaim my name, and I'll say things about myself, God's ways, that He's merciful and He's compassionate. So these pronunciations of God are going to communicate to Moses a vision of God without having a vision of God. Um, And this is um, the crescendo of God's statement, but you may not look directly at my face, for no one may see me and live. Um, This is an ultimate statement and it persists throughout human history. You know, God says to Moses, um, I'm going to put you in a cave, and I'm going to put my hand over you as I pass by, so you can't see the front of me, but after I've passed by, I'll let you see the back. I'll, I'll let you see the glory that remains after I've passed by. And he, he shelters Moses with his hand, literally with the palm, um, the, the tender part of the hand. Now, um, some of you are about my age, uh, and you can probably remember driving cars before car seats, uh, before shoulder harnesses. Have you found yourself doing what you did so many times when kids were riding with you in the front seat? You brake suddenly, and your hand goes out like that. Right? And it's not the, the back of your hand. You know, th- that's when it's like, don't make me bring this back. Um, no, it's, a, it's the palm. You, you go out to catch them falling forward with your palm. And I see this sort of protective instinct in God. He says, I'm going to just put my palm over your 
you, to protect you, and then let you see. In the next chapter, and we're not going into the next chapter, but the first three verses, God says, okay, Moses, here's what you have to do to prepare um, to come up and see me. So this particular conversation ends with these instructions. And he says, I want you to make new stone tablets, like the first that you broke. And um, what's the significance of that? He's saying, I'm restoring my covenant with Israel. Because that's what the tablets are about. They're about the covenant relationship. This, this last week I've been reading in the book of Proverbs and uh, also in Galatians. And there was a point when the two readings converged. It was when, at the end of Galatians, Paul said, Don't be misled. You cannot mock the justice of God. You will always harvest what you plant. That's the wisdom of the Proverbs. It says, always look down the road. Um, Go to the ant, thou sluggard. I'm sorry, I only remember the King James. Um, But sluggard, I would not trade that for anything. You know, slothful one doesn't quite cut it. Sluggard, <laughs> you know, you can just see him, you know, oozing his stream as he goes along the slug. Um, go to the ant thou sluggard and notice how industrious the ant is in the summer preparing for winter. So it could be I do something now to prepare for something that's coming. Um, but a lot of what Proverbs is about is a person who doesn't prepare, who doesn't think ahead who just lives for the moment, because in this moment, um, the juices are flowing, the opportunity is present, and what comes after is destruction. Uh, pride comes before destruction, and the haughty spirit before a fall. Uh, and you read through the Proverbs, and it makes, that wisdom makes doing the right thing seem so easy. Well, of course, you know, I'm planting a seed, and if I plant weeds, I'm going to get weeds. If I plant a fruit tree, I'm going to get a fruit tree. Um, So, of course, I'm going to want to plant the right thing. Um, Just look down the road, and you'll know. Okay. Why do we find it so hard at times? And, And if it's that easy, why do we need the book of Proverbs? I mean, any farmer can tell you what happens when you plant seed. I think it's because of the difference between immediate gratification and long-term rewards. And sometimes the urgency of the present erases the future. It's like I can separate this moment of my life from all the other moments, and it, it won't have any impact on those other moments that I can engage in this act, and there'll be no consequences. Nothing will out and I don't have to worry about it. I'm the only one who's here now. I'm the only one who knows. I have the cover of darkness. The the book of Proverbs goes into this with some detail. Um, And this moment is is separated from all the other uh, strings of of moments in my life. Paul said don't don't be deceived, God's not mocked. What you plant, you're going to reap. He also said, don't become weary with doing the right thing. Well, 
we can get weary because there may be no reward for doing the right thing. No immediate reward. No immediate gratification. I get no sensory feedback at all. Where there are some wrong things I can do and immediately get reward. I want to tell you about the person that I helped this last week. Because it makes a wonderful illustration of how I can get a reward for doing it right now by telling you. Because otherwise, you won't know. No one will know. Only God will know. And he doesn't advertise me. So so I want to tell someone who will. Um, Don't be weary with doing the right thing, with doing good, with, with, with being kind to others, being compassionate, being merciful and forgiving. Don't get tired of that just because there's no immediate reward. Or even because they might spit it back in your face and say, I don't need your pity. I don't need your forgiveness. What are you forgiving me for? I haven't done anything to you. And then you politely say, forgive me. I'm sorry. I leave you then with a curse. <laughs> but um, no, if, if you're going to do that, say it really kindly. Um, we need... I, I think the seed planting is a good illustration because... We plant the seed, we water it, and then nothing. For now, I, I remember planting a peach seed, and I was looking so forward to one day eating peaches off of that tree. And uh, every day I'd go and look for a sprout. I'd water it, and, I, and I did this, this was during the summer. I was in junior high school. And um, finally, one day I just dug it up to see if anything was happening. And um, I don't know. It, uh, Continually digging it up seemed to not help. (laughs) Chaucer said, and you'll recognize this, time and tide wait for no man or woman. He would have said woman if he wrote it today. Um, Do you think that the ocean cares about you? It doesn't. Do you think that time cares about you? That, That it's going to wait for you? The tide and time do not wait for you. They don't stop for you. Wait, 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 wait. I'm not ready. It doesn't work that way. Arthur Vogel said, uh, describing how this aspect of time can be oppressive to us, oh, how I want this moment of fun to last. I waited for it so long. But a glance at the hands of the clock tell me that time is rushing on in spite of my wishes. Another day, I am upset, anticipating an operation I do not want to have. If time would only speed up so that all would be over, I think to myself, but the hands on the clock continue their same course at their same speed, because time just doesn't care. You can't. Of course not. We are always in this time between planting and harvest. It's where we in this in-between time. What does that sound like? We're always on the threshold. We're always at the entrance of our tent. Uh, We're always in this this liminal space and liminal time in which God is present. And that's the consolation. That's what we hold on to. Um, We can turn and say, God, did you see that? Did you see what I just did? 
oh, okay, all right, you know, your son did a whole lot of better things, but I'm, I'm just glad that you're here and I can talk to you about it. All right, more than that, I'm just glad that you're here because your presence soothes everything. All my anxieties go away. If I can drop into this present moment, because no matter how fast or slow time is, is moving, in my opinion, when I'm in the present moment, God is always there, waiting for me, ready for me, open to me, as I open myself to him. It's always this space between one thing and another, between birth and death. Um, I mean, even when you've been planning a vacation for a long time, when you're finally on it, you're aware of, oh, no, just six more days, just five more days, just four more days here. We've got to make the most of it. Again, Vogel said, the liberation offered us in Christianity is the gift of the future in the present through the presence of the glorified Christ with us now. He is our future come to us. Thus, all who recognize Jesus as the Christ have the future in the present. He says, you don't have to wait for the future to experience the reward of the good that you do because Jesus with us now brings the future to us now. Jesus is the reward. His presence is the reward. And there's none greater. God's presence being with me does not depend on my awareness of him. But when I am aware of his presence, it changes everything for me. The present has meaning for us because God is in the present moment. John Kabat-Zinn said, we don't live for the moment, but we live in the moment. And there's a difference. If we live for the moment, we're going to be all anxious about it. But just living in the moment, we find peace in God's presence. So, I want to encourage you be bold in your prayer. Pray. Show me your glory. I mean, won't that do it for you? I mean, I, I planted the seed and I don't see anything, but show me your glory. And that would be enough. Philip, told, Philip the disciple told Jesus, if you just show us the Father, that'd be enough for us. And he said, oh, Philip, have I been with you so long and you don't recognize me? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And, and Jesus says, I'm, I'm with you. And the presence of the Father is with you. The presence of the future is with you. Show me your glory. And then look for it in the places where you used to see it and forgot that you left it there. Like the sunrise and the sunset and, and a single star at night if it's bright enough. The poet said, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament is praise to his handiwork. Would you stand with me, please? You are so patient. I would not sit here this long listening to me. (laughs) So may you be blessed. Uh, May the Lord keep away all evil and lead us into eternal life. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.